Bibles, if you would, please, and we'll open them up to John chapter 4. And tonight we're going to take a break from our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, Next week we'll come back to that and the little mini-series that we're doing on the bride and the bridegroom. And I wanted to save that last message until next week because that's when we're having the Lord's Supper. So we'll be able to finish that up with the church ordinance that has been specially reserved for those who are part of the Lord's Bride. So I want to take this uh, scripture that we have in John chapter 4 as a starting place uh, to discuss with you tonight the subject of worship, the right way to worship. Uh, Some time ago, uh, Gary Albright and I had a conversation about worship, and uh, people are confused about it. And I thought about how I had preached on this subject a few years ago, and I thought that I would just revisit that tonight. Most of you, or many of you, could be thinking that, well, speaking of worship here in a church service, that's really a moot point. Uh, We're here in church, we come on Sunday mornings, and we come on Sunday night, and we're here for the purpose of worship. And so we just figure that since we're here, we, we know all there is to know about it. We know how to worship. And as a child of God, you do understand that you are supposed to worship. Uh, Worship is an integral part of our Christian faith. We're told many times in Scripture that we are to worship God. Uh, We we begin reading in the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis, and there we find that God was very early on teaching man to worship. In fact, when you get out of the first few chapters, you find there that God had created the world, and then he did that in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, And God was showing us there that on one day of the week, we are especially take a time to worship him. Now, here in this text in John chapter 4, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And I'm not going to go into that whole story tonight, but we just kind of want to use this one section as sort of a jumping off point to talk to you about worship. So if you look in John chapter 4, beginning in verse number 19, the scripture says, The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now there, let me just briefly give an explanation of what's going on there. Uh, The woman in Samaria was talking about Mount Gerizim, which is the place where they worshipped, whereas Jerusalem was the place where... Uh, They worshiped in Judea, and so she questions this, and she understands that they worship in Jerusalem, and they worship in Mount Gerizim. Verse 21, Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews." But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What's clear to us here that in these scriptures, the Samaritan woman and Jesus had different ideas about worship. And although this Samaritan woman was not worshiping God in the right way, yet she did know that this was something people are supposed to do. She already had this in her mind, in her heart, that she was to worship God. And she thought that she was, but Jesus points out that she's not giving proper worship to God. And worship is so ingrained into the human character that even heathens in the darkest parts of the world know that they are supposed to worship. Men that have never met the true God, they still have this innate sense that they need to worship. 
When Paul was writing to the Romans, he explained to them how the whole world is guilty before God, and he said something very interesting about worship. If you'll turn over there to Romans chapter 1, you'll find a familiar scripture. I, I often refer to this when we're talking about the depravity of man. And Paul says something here about worship in verse number 22, starting there, Romans 1 verse number 22. He says, "...professing themselves to be wise, they became fools." Change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footing beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. Verse 25, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Now, even though the heathen worships God wrongly, he still has it in his heart that he needs to worship. Now, we can talk about those misapplications of worship of the heathen, and we might think, well, that's understandable. Heathen doesn't yet know about God. He's never heard about Jesus Christ. He doesn't know the gospel. And so, of course, he hasn't been taught to worship properly. But not only do the heathens, and heathens, of course, I mean, can mean anybody that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. Not only do they not know how to worship properly, but there are also many Christians who have this this whole idea about how we are to worship God wrong. And this was really the case of the woman at the well. Now, she was a person who didn't worship a heathen God. She did know about Jehovah God, but she didn't worship him in the right way. And I'm afraid that we do see the very same types of things in modern Christianity today. And so what we really need is for someone to communicate to us the right way to worship God. Well, thank the Lord for this. He has given us a source of that information. We find it here in the Bible. All that we really need to know how to worship God properly is found right here in the Scriptures. And so as we begin this evening, I think that we need to define what's meant by worship. So on your listening sheet, I've given you a definition of worship. Worship is setting your mind's attention and heart's affection in the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he has done for you all the time. Now notice that last phrase, all the time. That's a fairly easy concept to grasp. If you'll listen very closely to me, it means all the time. And that criterion, though, is one that's very, very difficult for us to master. I mean, even when we're in places of time, in times when uh, we know that worship should be the only thing that's on our minds, and when we think that, well, worship should come easily to me, we find that it doesn't. And I'm almost afraid to ask you now, uh, how many of you that are listening to me preach tonight that you're thinking about something else while I'm preaching? Uh, we're, we're, we know that we're supposed to worship God, and yet right in the middle of the preaching of God's word, many people's minds will wander off. And preaching is, of course, a form of worship. Uh, in the book of Nehemiah, there's a great story there about worship. Ezra stood up on a pulpit of wood, and he read from the book of the law. And the Bible says that after he had read the scriptures, that he gave the sense of the reading. Uh, he was actually preaching, and that's what preaching is, is explaining what the word of God says. And that was worship. And the result of it was that the people were so moved by the word of God, by the preaching of God's word, that they wept aloud because they were overcome with this deep sense of unworthiness before God because of the great sins that they had committed. Now, some people come to church with the idea that the song service, that is where we worship God. And one of the titles that's given to 
some leaders in some churches is the title worship leader. And the idea is that the song leader, some guy sitting at the piano or with a praise band behind him or a group of singers, that that's the worship leader. And people think, well, uh, to really worship God, you've got to get involved in that music. I've got to have something that makes me tap my toes and makes me sway back and forth and really gets me involved in that, and then I'm going to be worshiping God. And I think most of the time you find out when you think like that, that you're actually worshiping yourself rather than God because you're looking for the thing that affects you the most rather than what affects God the most. But I challenge you to find this concept in Scripture about the worship leader in that sense. I think that the worship leader is the pastor. When he reads from the Word of God, when he preaches from the Bible, he is actually leading in the worship. And what else goes on in the church is a response to what we hear in the Word of God. So in the book of Nehemiah, we find singing, we find worship there. They did worship in song, but it was prompted by the reading of God's word. So we can worship in song, that's true, but the song leader, I don't think, is the worship leader. And here in Berean Baptist, we put our emphasis mainly upon the preaching of the word of God, the preaching ministry. So this is the worship time. And yet, in the middle of the preaching, we often find our minds wander off to some other thing that uh, we're thinking about, some other thing that we have to do, some problem that we're facing. And we lose that sense of having all of our mind's attention and all of our heart's affection on the Lord. Do you ever find that's true when you're reading the Bible? That maybe you're sitting at home and you're reading your devotions or something and you read two or three verses of Scripture and you read on down to the end of the chapter and when you get down to the end you discover you don't have any idea what you just read. Anybody want to confess that? Okay, well, it happens to all of us. So your mind wanders off. You go to some other thought, and so really your mind is no longer worshiping God, and it does happen to all of us. And so the reason that your mind wanders off when you're under the preaching of God's Word is that the devil doesn't want your attention on the Lord. And the reason why you wander off when you're reading the Word is because the Bible doesn't want you to learn anything from the Word. And so if he loses that battle of keeping you from going to church or keeping you from reading your Bible daily, if he loses that battle, then he just starts up another one. He tries to draw your attention from the reading or attention from the preaching that's going on. And that's why worship becomes so difficult to do. Now this evening I want to ask you some questions as we discover what the scriptures have to say about worship. First question is, are you prepared to worship? Peter says in 1 Peter 2 verse 5, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. I want you to see in that scripture that God has a particular type of person in mind for worship. And this is a person who has been prepared in a particular way. Now, we'll notice there that Peter uses words like stones and priesthood and sacrifices. And he used those words because those were things that would mean something to his readers. Uh, Those are words that uh, harken back to their spiritual training. And I'm going to show you that in just a moment. But they could relate to what Peter was saying because those things were in their mind and they knew something about the background of those words. And they were prepared by the knowledge of certain things. And there are some things that you have to know before you can worship God properly. Now, chief among those is that you would have to know Jesus. Uh, Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father. And if you don't know Christ, then you couldn't know how to worship the Father. 
and we look here and we see what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She said, "Ye worship." Ye, he said, "You worship what you know. You know not what." And he said that because she didn't yet know him. And you have to know him to worship properly. Now, if we look at this first phrase that Peter uses, he says, "Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house." Stones are interesting. Uh, items in the scripture. Sometime it would be profitable for you just to look up st- the word stones in your concordance and look in the Bible and see how many times the Bible talks about stones and how it uses that. But I want to call your attention to one particular set of stones that we find in scripture. Now, if you turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4, uh, this is the story of Israel just before the battle of Jericho, and they were uh, crossing the Jordan River, and you know the story how God parted the waters and they walked across on dry ground. And if you'll look in Joshua chapter 4, Joshua told, told them to do something. Uh, Joshua 4, verse number 1. And it came to pass when all the people were clean passed over Jordan that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe of man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, pay close attention to verses 6 and 7. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, that the waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it passed over Jordan. The waters of Jordan were cut off, And these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. So we see that Joshua tells the people that they need to know and they need to remember some things. And you cannot worship God unless you have a proper knowledge. And this is what he's really trying to tell them. You're not going to be able to worship God until you have a proper knowledge of who God is and what God has done for you. And so the people were prepared as they went into the land of Canaan uh, through the knowledge of God, and they knew how to worship him because they praised God for who he is and what he has done. So the first preparation for worship is to know God. And Peter uses the term here, lively stones, or literally living stones. The stones for the children of Israel, that was a memorial to them. They could look back at that, and they could see what God has done, how powerful that God is. A memorial is something that prompts the memory. It's to relate something that's in the past. But we also see here that Peter says that you are living stones. And he means by that that you are a living testimony of Christ with your life. Now, did you know that? Did you know that you are a living testimony? Parents, do you know that your children are watching you? Your children see what you do every day, and they know how spiritual you are. You may be able to fool other people, but right in your own home, your children are going to find out how spiritual that you are because they read your life and they learn according to that. And also at your place of work, your co-workers are reading your life. And they know much more about your Christianity and who you are by what you do rather than what you say. And if you ever do decide that you're going to tell them about Jesus, you're going to have a hard time overcoming a bad testimony. 
So what I'm trying to tell you is that your everyday life is actually preparation for worship. You're a living stone. And that means that you cannot walk into this place and just stand up and sing the songs and pray the prayers and listen to the preaching and do what it is you do in church if you have not already been prepared for worship. You just can't come in and automatically start worshiping God. Now, one of the things that Isaiah told the people of God, he was relating God's words to them, and he said, God says, you draw near to me with your mouths, but your heart is far from me. And what he meant was, you are only pretending to worship me. And I think that's what we again we find in uh, again find in many churches is that the music or what the style of the music is, what all that's about, uh, all those other things, and that is what they think is what worship is all about. Well, here's something else that Peter says in the ninth verse of First Peter chapter two. He says, "But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people." that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And you see what stands out the most in that ninth verse? It's the word peculiar. God says you are a peculiar people. You ever been called peculiar? Now I look at some of you and I say, yeah, yes, some of you are very peculiar. Some of you are downright strange. It's a little bit scary sometimes. And, and we might not like being peculiar. And if I say, well, you know that guy over there, he's a very peculiar person. Well, usually I'm not making a compliment. But when you say this about God's people, it is a compliment. And that's because we don't act, we don't look like, we don't dress like the world. We're different in the things that we do, and that makes us peculiar. And that's okay with me. I hope it's okay with you. Preparation for worship means this, that you have to be a little bit peculiar for Jesus. Your, your life out there has to be something different. James wrote that pure religion is to keep ourselves unspotted from the world. Well, we go on to the second question. Question number two is, do you know the persons to worship? Now, we go back to John chapter 4 again, and we look at verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So who are the persons for worship? Sadly, in some ministries, they think that the preacher is the person to worship. And so you have preachers that have their groupies you know they follow them around wherever they go and all their worship is given to the pastor well I do think that you need to respect the pastor respect what he does but you don't worship him you you follow him only as he follows God now I think you know me well enough that you and you know what we teach around here that that you understand what I'm going to say next here who are the persons of worship you you already know who that is if you want to fill in the next blanks you know what they are the first one is god the father god the father is one of the persons that we worship and we just read over in romans chapter 1 that the heathen confused the object of his worship he worshiped the wrong thing paul said he worships the creature the creature rather than the creator And that kind of thing has happened in Christian churches today. The creature is worshipped rather than God, who is the creator. And so what men have done, they've created all their idols to worship. And you can go and visit and 
Roman Catholic churches, you can find idols there, images everywhere. You have the rosaries, you have the crosses, and you have all of that, and those are objects of worship. But it's not just these graven images that we find. Many Christian denominations worship their traditions. They worship the manner of worship, the types of things that they do in church. That's actually their worship. So they worship their dogmas, and they worship their liturgies that they say by rote. And that's the very kind of thing that Jesus called vain repetitions. And he said, that is not worship. That's why he gave us the model prayer. He corrected all the vain babblings. And if you remember, in that model prayer, the very first thing that he says is, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that is an essential component of worship, that we understand that we have to reverence God, that we hallow his name. And when you find Christians, again, that are on the outside of the church walls and they can use God's name in vain, then you can rest assured they're not prepared when they come in here to hallow God's name, to worship him. Now, in verse number 21 of this text in uh, John chapter 4, Jesus mentions to this woman the worship of the Father. And when Jesus prayed, his prayers were directed to the Father. We find the Apostle Paul beginning and ending many of his letters with worship of the Father. Romans chapter 16, the ending of that letter is a very pointed one. He says, To God only wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. And so we need to understand we must worship the Father. Secondly, we know that we need to worship God the Son. Now let's go over to the ninth chapter of John for just a moment. And uh, this should be familiar territory for everyone. We're going to look for just a little segment here of the story of the blind man that Jesus healed at the pool of Siloam. And I'm picking up the reading here. Uh, After the Pharisees questioned this man, uh, he was healed, and they were asking him questions about how he was healed, how it was done, and they didn't like the answers. So they were very distraught with him, and so they took him and they threw him out of the synagogue. Now, if you look at verse number 35 in John chapter 9, Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and when he had found him, he said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord? that I might believe on him. And Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talketh with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Now, we could spend hours tonight talking about why we need to worship Jesus, the work that Jesus has done and how that he's worthy of our worship. I mean, that's really the central theme of Scripture. It's what the Son of God came into this world to do and how he came to die for sin. And Paul said that his name is above every name, and at his name every knee should bow. And we go to the book of Hebrews, and we find there that Jesus is better than the angels, he's better than Moses, he's better than the law. The book of Revelation says that he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. It says he was the one who was dead and now is alive forevermore. And so we look at Jesus and we know that he is God of very God and he deserves to be worshipped. And I said earlier, you have to know Christ to know how to worship because if you don't know him, the Bible doesn't make any sense. Knowledge of Christ is essential for our worship. The scripture says, John says, John chapter 1 verse 18, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 
That's the way that you get to God. That's how you worship God the Father. You go through Jesus the Son because he's the visible manifestation. And here's the very reason why the heathen can't worship. And that's why a Buddhist doesn't know how to worship. It's why a Muslim doesn't know how to worship. It's why anyone who doesn't understand that Jesus is God really does not know how to worship. The Jews that reject Christ don't know how to worship God. The way to genuinely worship God is to know Jesus, who is the Son of God. Now, thirdly, who do you worship? God the Spirit. Romans 8 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I don't think that there's any greater confusion in Christianity today than how to worship the Holy Spirit. Confusion about how to worship Him. Now, we do understand that the Holy Spirit is God. Uh, Several times in the Scripture we find uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit mentioned together. And uh, tonight I'm not going to take time with you to go through proofs of of the deity of the Holy Spirit, but we do believe the Bible teaches that God is a trinity. And I don't understand all about the Trinity, neither does anyone else. I've read explanation after explanation, but the Trinity is a mystery that the mind simply cannot understand. We get a glimpse of it, we know some things about it, but we can't explain it. So all that I can do is tell you the Bible teaches this, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. They're one in essence, they're one in attributes, they're one in existence, they are all one God, and yet they are three separate persons. I can't explain how that happens, but that's what the Bible teaches. Well, we need to understand then this particular person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, how are we going to worship him? And I would say that most of the time, he's not worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now, the scriptures do tell us how the Holy Spirit is to be recognized, uh, how we we are to worship him, and it's not the way that many people do today. This might seem to be a little bit awkward to say, But you cannot worship the Holy Spirit correctly by constantly drawing attention to him. He's not worshipped by these ostentatious displays of speaking in tongues and barking like dogs and rolling around on the floor. A few years ago, it was hysterical laughing. There was what they called the laughing revival. And people thought, well, there's a manifestation of the Spirit. We just get real happy and we go crazy laughing. Well, the Holy Spirit doesn't seek those kind of displays. That makes a mockery of his purpose. So what does the Holy Spirit do? What is his work? Well, he's here, according to Scripture, to convict us and to convince us of sin. And his purpose is to point us to Jesus Christ, who is the remedy for that sin. The Holy Spirit tells us that Christ is the only hope of our salvation. So he never seeks to exalt himself and glorify himself in that way, the way that you bring honor to the Holy Spirit is to look to Christ. Here's what Jesus says. He says, How be it when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Now, it always works this way. Whenever the Spirit receives the wrong kind of worship, then the work of Jesus Christ in salvation is always diminished. 
And you'll find that churches to do, that do this, that the Word of God is often rejected for some kind of seemingly superior revelation. Some, some immediate revelation that they get from God rather than looking into the Word of God. Now, Jesus tells us that the work of the Spirit is very specialized. It's specified very clearly. And so anyone who takes that worship of the Holy Spirit and does it falsely, that misuses that specialized work of the Holy Spirit, makes him a mockery. So he becomes a joke to the world, and people actually dishonor the work of the Holy Spirit when they do that, and they're not genuinely worshiping God. So you take a look at these churches that continually emphasize the Holy Spirit and see how much preaching is actually done about sin, how much is done about hell, and how much is done about the cross. And they don't really talk too much about those things because those are primarily issues that the Son of God deals with in our salvation. And so when salvation in Christ is diminished, then you know that the Holy Spirit is not being worshipped properly. So the Holy Spirit, that's a person of worship. He has to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. Now we go on to the third question. Do you have the power for worship? Listen to Philippians 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now I know from reading that that Uh, This verse says that the power that enables me to worship God does not come from within me. I don't have any confidence in the flesh. It cannot begin my worship. It cannot sustain my worship. And so I'm helpless and I'm, I'm powerless in myself to worship God in the way that he tells me. Now, that is really a far thought from modern Christianity. Self sufficiency is in vogue in today's church. I mean, how many times do you, do you hear preaching uh, about the depravity of man. I mean, how many times do you hear preachers say things like Charles Wesley did in that beautiful hymn of his, Jesus, lover of my soul? And there he wrote, Just and holy is thy name. I am full of unrighteousness. False and full of sin I am. Thou art full of truth and grace. You don't hear that very much in modern preaching because what has happened in modern churches is the gap between man and God has been significantly narrowed. There is no real gap anymore between man and God. And so you turn on your television and you hear everything from self-esteem, what I should think about myself, feeling better about myself, things like Robert Schuller preaches and Joel Osteen preaches. And then the next step to that is Kenneth Copeland, who teaches that men are actually little gods that you are actually a little God. And you know what that does to people? It increases their hopelessness. I mean, if you're all that great and and you're a little God and you're right next to God and you still fail, then what step is God going to take that you haven't already taken? See, it's only when you surrender to the sovereignty of God that you really have hope. And I, I, I love to preach the doctrine that we have here because it makes me completely dependent upon God. So I have no confidence in the flesh because I know the flesh is up to no good. The flesh is always going to fail me. So where can I find that ability to worship God? Well, the Scripture tells us I can have the ability, I can have the confidence, I can have the power to worship. And we find it in Philippians 4.13. There Paul says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Like Brother Dalton sang a moment ago, in Christ alone. That's where we're going to find our sufficiency. Now, Philippians 4.13 is a, is a verse that's often taught wrongly. 
the the concentration in that verse is usually put upon I, what I can do. But when Paul wrote that, he, he wasn't interested in having God energize his flesh for his own purposes. The concentration of that verse really should be upon Christ, not I, but what Christ does through me. So God works through me, and it's always God's work to receive glory. Worship gives him glory, and so my sufficiency to worship and my power to worship is only through him. Paul says further in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So there is the real power for genuine worship. So you never come into the church thinking, well, here is what I'm going to do for God. You come to church saying, what is God going to do through me? And that's the right attitude. And when you have that, then you can worship him. Now, fourthly, is do you know the place to worship? Jesus and the Samaritan woman discussed the place of worship. She says, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Now, I would submit to you that the place to worship God is not even right here on earth. It's not in a physical location like Ronard Park or in Brian Baptist Church. We might do a part of our worship here or may begin it here, but our worship actually takes place somewhere else that's outside of this world. Our place of worship is actually at the very throne of God. Hebrews says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And when Jesus died on the cross... He opened up the way to the throne of God. In the tabernacle and the temple worship, there was a, a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And as you know, the high priest was the only one who was allowed to go behind that veil. He went behind the veil one time per year, and there he offered a sacrifice for the sins of the people. But he was the only one that was allowed to go into that place in the presence of God. But when Jesus died on the cross... The way to the mercy seat was forever opened up. When he died, the scripture says that the veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, completely through, and that made it possible for us to access the very throne of God. And so where do we worship now? Well, we don't worship in the Holy of Holies. We don't worship in a temple, in a tabernacle, and we don't even really worship in the church. I mean, the place to worship God is any place where I can lift up my heart to him, where I can give praises to God, where I can thank him for his marvelous grace. And when I do that, I'm right there in the throne room of God. And this is why I say, if your worship hasn't already begun on the outside, you're not going to be able to carry it on in here. Because the place of worship is at the very throne of God. So that's where you're going to be when you worship him. And so a place where God can be worshipped in spirit and truth is a place of worship. And that can be in your home, it can be at work, it can be in your car, it can be in the park down the street, or it can be in the building right here. God does not restrict our access. And so any place that you lift up your heart to him, then you have a portal into God's throne room. So his throne is the place of worship, and, and you can see that from wherever you are. It doesn't matter. That's a place of genuine worship. Now, finally then, and I know that uh, we can't forget this, the next question is stamped into your brain. You know what I teach, and you know what what, uh, the answer to this question is. What is the purpose of worship? Do you know the purpose of worship? 
and you know it well. The purpose of worship is to glorify God. Well, how do I glorify God? Let me give you three quick answers to that question. How do you glorify God? First of all, be a living sacrifice. Romans 12:1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So we give our body, our soul, and our spirit into the service of Christ. He's done all for us, so how can we do less for him? Secondly, to glorify God, be a vessel of praise. Psalm 50, verse 23, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. Now that word praise means extolling or exaltation of a deity, a ruler, or a hero. And that fits. It fits. God is my God. God is my ruler. God is my hero. God's my all in all. And so to him goes all the honor and praise. Thirdly, you glorify God by being a thankful person. Psalm 116, verse 17, I will offer to thee the sacrifice of thanksgiving and will call upon the name of the Lord. So all of these, these are acts of worship. Our purpose is to glorify God. It's to have a life that's pleasing to God and daily sacrifice to him. It's to praise him for who he is and to thank him for what he has done. So do you really know how to worship God? Worshiping Worshiping God is setting your mind's attention and heart's affection in the Lord, praising him for who he is and what he has done for you all the time. That's how you worship God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your presence with us tonight. And Lord, we do, above all things, want to worship you in our singing, our preaching, our praying. Everything that we do is to be for your honor and your glory. Lord, I I do pray that you would help your people to be prepared for their worship, that our everyday life would be a testimony for you so that when we come into this place, our hearts are already lifted up. We, we don't have to be prompted by anything, but we can just take the time in the singing and listening to the preaching and again in the praying that our hearts are already prepared to worship you. Lord, help us to do that, and then we know that when we come here, everything will be proper and decent and in order because we have been prepared to worship you. Bless us in this time that we sing tonight. Be with your people. And we just give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.